Good morning, church family. I'm here to give you a brief introduction on Andrew, our guest, guest speaker for this morning. It's my pleasure to do so since um, he's probably been one of the largest influences on my thoughts about missions, scripture, suffering and generosity, just to name a few. Um, here's my trust on these issues because I've seen him live out his convictions over the last 12 years. That's right. I've known Andrew since 2009 when I was preparing for my first trip to Myanmar. It was his second trip and he was team leader as we visited an orphanage to run a summer Bible school-like program with the children. Um, taking groups of Aussies to visit the children annually was his plan for raising support and awareness for them. Um, in 2011, that support had grown to the point where he started a child sponsorship charity. Um, those annual trips, they would lead to the most interesting side features regularly. Um, one time we were followed by a horde of children as we walked through a village to visit a Christian. Um, and the team crowded into a house barely big enough for us. And then the children were trying to squeeze in and sit in between us and, and poking their head in the door. They were curious as to these people who'd come. And so Andrew asked them, have you ever heard the name of Jesus? None of them had. None of them knew who Jesus was, so Andrew pulled some paper out of his bag and kept the kids enthralled with his demonstration while presenting the gospel to them. Um, though Andrew is passionate about the people of Myanmar, they're not the only people he cares about. He was the first person to teach me street evangelism in Brisbane and how to run a home Bible study. Additionally, if one can tolerate his dorky fashion sense and penchant for intentionally making any given conversation as awkward as he possibly can, in return one gets a generous... Um, Doris are always open, willing to dig into the dig deep into the word of God and reliable friend. Um, in 2013, Andrew moved to Myanmar, not knowing what he would do, but intending to find out how he could improve the situation for orphaned, abandoned and vulnerable children. Uh, he spent some time researching, reviewing the resources of the church in Myanmar um, and contemplating what support was needed to extend the capabilities of staff and property there. Andrew must be some kind of competent businessman as he started and sold one in Australia. Furthermore, his answer to the physical needs of the children in Myanmar was, uh, combined with the resources he could muster, was to start a preschool. Ah, there's no photos. Um, he obtained the funds to build it, employed staff, and off he went. This was a school with a difference, though. Um, the attendance fees were a little high, but wealthy parents happily paid them. They didn't pay them because there was a white native English speaker there. They paid because the Myanmar staff were passionate educators who delivered a top-tier quality education. The kind of education rich parents wanted for their children and were willing to pay for. Those parents just happened to also be paying the school fees for the orphaned children as well. The preschool was so successful that parents wanted their children to attend in grade one and beyond. Before, the last, before last year, they were up to, I think, grade three or four. The buildings also housed church activities and an English school for students of all ages. All of this may make him qualified to speak at a conference for NGOs, but why do I recommend him as a missionary, even though he would never call himself one? Because in 12 years of friendship, I've seen him take every opportunity to speak about God, explaining his word without shying away from the hard stuff. He gets passionate about God's glory being revealed, the salvation of souls, and encouraging Christians in their walk with God everywhere, Myanmar included. Accordingly, the school buildings have become opportunities to reach the lost. In 2019, I spent a few weeks in Myanmar volunteering at the school's summer holiday program. There should be a photo of me teaching. There we go, back, back one. There we go, there's me teaching um, the kids. Um, Western cooking. Um, while there, I overheard a few development, staff development meetings, which, which despite not all the, the teachers being Christians involved digging into God's word and applying it to the situations at the school and training in workplace Christian values. 
but one of my favourite experiences came every week after Andrew's advanced English class. He would give the students a few dollars to buy snacks, then head to the library for English discussion class, which was a chance to exchange ideas. After discussion, Andrew would inevitably expound upon Christian views. These were held on topics such as why does suffering exist, what does it mean to honour your parents, and comparisons of Buddhist and Christian teachings about the afterlife. We also ended up taking some of those students to an English-speaking church to check out their rock-style worship and practice listening to English a few times. On the way back home, we stopped at a restaurant and discussed over dinner. Last year, Andrew was on a visit to Australia that was supposed to be brief, when suddenly, due to COVID, the borders closed. Additionally, on February 1st this year, the military took over the country and since then have been causing growing distress for the people of Myanmar. So we're not sure when he can go back, but for the time being, I hope you will get some value from today. feels like exaggeration because she skipped over all the, the dumb and bad things that I did. <laughs> uh, and of course, my parents are here today, so if you want to verify that, tr that truth, you can talk to them. Uh, thank you too for the opportunity of speaking here to the, the leaders. Um, uh, I do see it as a privilege. Uh, I'd like to start with a, a very well-known... Oh, hang on. Let me start by taking something out of my pocket. <laughs> okay. Turn it on. Okay. Okay, there we go. I'd like to start with a very well-known Christian saying. Uh, I'm sure you've heard it. Uh, I heard it at church uh, just a few weeks ago. I, I want you to take a moment to critique that saying. What verses does it bring to mind? Uh, do you agree with it? If you don't agree with it, how would you qualify it? There it is, I think. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Have you heard that statement? Woody, uh, some people have it. Uh, Woody Allen probably disagreed with this. He said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans. But my observation has been that most Christians would disagree with Allen and agree that God does have good plans for us. Okay, so now I'm going to change that phrase or add something to that phrase. And then I want you to critique it again. Does the phrase seem somewhat out of place? <laughs> Can you imagine saying to people as they walked away from the Colosseum, after watching Christians used as human torches, hey, you should become a Christian. God has a wonderful plan for your life. I think that with just a slight change to that statement, uh, we can uh, help it make perfect sense. But the question I have is, why is that idea so prevalent for Western Christians? John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, had some insight into this. In one of his last sermons, he expressed his greatest fear for the Methodist Church. I'll come back to that at the end. Well, let's see what the Gospel of Luke has to say about this. If you brought your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 12, and we'll start at verse 4. 
I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you who to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Uh, for many years, a woman was having great trouble sleeping at night because she feared burglars. Late one night, her husband heard a noise in the house, and so he went downstairs to investigate. When he got there, he did find a burglar. And he said, ah, good evening. I'm so pleased to see you. Come upstairs and meet my wife. She's been waiting 10 years to meet you. <laughs> These irrational fears that we sometimes entertain have become a reality in Myanmar. For months, people have struggled to sleep at night for fear of unjust arrest or nighttime abductions. Many of you, oops, sorry, many of you uh, would have seen on the news the reports of a military coup in February of this year. Before people were being shot in the streets, hundreds of thousands of them, as you can see, were going to those streets and protesting. On the 10th of March, my friends were protesting at a shopping center just near where our school is. The soldiers stormed the protest, the young people fled, and hundreds were captured. They were taken to jail, but fortunately for my two friends that were there, they escaped. Uh, and they found safety with 12 other girls in a stranger's bathroom. You can see the messages, perhaps you can read them, uh, that one of my friends was sending me while she was hiding uh, from the, the army and the police. I've asked myself often since then, am I brave enough to risk my life for something that I believe in? Or would I have found some good reason to stay at home, to avoid the tear gas and the bullets and the prisons? For my friends in Myanmar, this continues to be a daily reality. Have you noticed that we tend to do exactly the opposite of what Jesus commanded us in that verse? We tend to fear men too much and we don't fear God enough. In fact, it's not uncommon for you to hear people tell you that you don't need to fear God at all. Do you see, did you see in verse 4 who Jesus addressed his comments to? It was to his friends. It's his friends who should fear God. Uh, well, the violence that's been unfolding in Myanmar has been unfolding in a country that is 90% Buddhist. Uh, real authentic Buddhism is very different to the mutant forms that Angelina Jolie or Kate Hudson uh, might promote. For example, real Buddhism is quite sexist. Uh, monks will refuse to sit next to a woman. I remember watching in amazement as a young monk came in onto the bus uh, and wanted to sit at the front where there was a young woman with a small child. So the young woman with the small child got up and moved to the back so that the young monk could sit down. And sadly, real Buddhism takes freedom away from people. 
This is the Human Freedom Index. Actually, all the sources for what I'm sharing today you can find on the last slide. Myanmar ranked 148 in the world for general human freedoms. And you can see at the bottom, other Buddhist countries are not much better. Uh, and real Buddhism has produced a deep societal corruption. Myanmar ranks, I don't know if you can see that, yeah, Myanmar ranks 132 in the world for honesty in business. Contrast that with countries that have had a strong Christian heritage. They're easy to see, they're all at the top of the list, and most of them have a, a cross in their flags. It's really hard for Australians to understand how Buddhism and religion is interwoven into the Myanmar community. In fact, the culture is Buddhism. To challenge Buddhism is to kind of attack the country itself. Every Buddhist home has a shrine, every public school has a shrine, and every child is expected to worship at those. And that's why these countries need missionaries. Christian missions brings goodness to a country and eternal life to a soul. But that's all far away, far away from where we sit today here in sunny southeast Queensland. What does the Lord expect for us? Well, I think the first thing is that we can reflect on this principle. Do I fear God more than I fear losing my life? Okay, so we're in Luke chapter 12. Let's look at verse 15. Whoops, a little. Okay, then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does life consist of his possessions. Although we're not to fear men, we are, in a sense, to fear greed. Uh, I see that in those words, beware and be on your guard. The Apostle Paul explained why we need to be on guard. He warns in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that those who want to get rich are at grave risk of ruin and destruction. Uh, that's probably something to be fearful of. So here is our second principle. Here is our second principle. Maybe here is our second principle. <laughs> our second principle. Nope. <laughs> there, we go. Uh, there we go. I think that's it. Oh, no, that's not it. Let's try that one. Here we go. Now we've got it. Okay. Second principle. Greed is dangerous. Okay. Jesus now illustrates why greed is dangerous, starting in verse 16. And he told them a parable saying... The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. The first point I want to note is that the man was rich. The Bible doesn't say how rich he was, but I'm going to speculate. I'm going to suggest that this man 
was as about as rich as you. Please give me a moment to try and explain why I suspect this. Now, of course, I don't know how wealthy you are. So let's look at how wealthy I am. This slide shows on the right one of the richest men in the world and on the left one of the poorest. That's Tashway, uh, and in the background you can see Tori chasing after her. Uh, your church has been supporting Tashway and Tori over recent years, and uh, I'm sure she'd want me to say thank you. The question is, where do I fit on this scale? Let me help you a little. Uh, I'm employed at two schools. I do IT support work. I'm paid less quite a bit less than a first-year teacher would at those schools. I have something to my advantage, though. I don't have any children uh, to support, at least not here in Australia. Uh, so what percentage do you have in your mind? Where do I sit on that scale? I am richer than 96% of the people alive today. Uh, you can look up your own scale from the link on the bottom, I think. That's astonishing, isn't it? I put the figures in there for the average family in the Winner Manly area. The average family in this area is richer than 95% of the people alive today. And uh, if you're one of those lucky ones that aren't married and don't have children, you're in the richest 2% of the world's population. But that's today. What about uh, compared to people in centuries past? This chart comes from an MR University presentation. The hockey stick chart, this hockey stick chart shows a very low annual income of about $1,000 for multiple millennia. And actually, I quote, Historical living standards never fell very far below $600 a year for very long because if they do fall below that, they become dying standards, not living ones. I know it seems impossible to live off just $1,000 a year. That's not much more than $2 a day. But people do. 700 million people today are living off around about $2 a day. And here's how they do it. These are two of the girls from our orphanage delivering tarpaulins during the rainy season to even poorer communities near where they live. Uh, the families in these homes don't have a car, they don't have furniture, <laughs> they don't have insurance, they don't have a fridge, an oven, they don't have a bed, they don't have bedrooms, they don't have a washing machine, desks, or holidays. Uh, and the things for them have become worse over the last two years with COVID and the coup. It's put thousands of people out of work. But I've been amazed at how little money they need to survive. Uh, it's amazing when you eliminate unnecessary things like fridges, what you can live off. So, so what does this mean? You and I are among the richest people 
on the planet and we are living in the richest period of human history. Uh, Tim Walstall was a, uh, a fellow with one of the world's leading economic uh, think tanks. He put it this way, by any historical standards, all Americans and Australians are simply hugely, gargantuanly richer than any but the fewest most privileged of our forefathers. So this is why I think Australian Christians have a good reason to identify with the rich man in Jesus' parable. We are, we are among the richest people who have ever lived. And if there's just one thing that you take away from what I've shared today, I hope it's this. We are incredibly blessed. We are incredibly rich. And to whom God has given much, much is required. So, what happened to this man in the parable? Jesus says that the man's land was very productive. We could perhaps rephrase that this way. God blessed his land. Second, what did the man plan to do with this windfall that God gave him? Jesus said he planned to build bigger barns so he could keep it for the future. We could rephrase that this way. He invested his windfall maybe in shares or super or an investment property. Does that sound familiar to you? It sounds a lot to me like what a financial planner would advise us to do today. So what was the response to his actions? We can see that in verse 20. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared. Why is Jesus so down on him? It feels like this man did exactly what we might do today. He worked, he prospered, and he saved for the future. So what did he do wrong? Well, we can see that in verse 21. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The first part of Jesus' criticism is that he stored up treasure for himself. He had no needs at all, but he still kept the extra he received. And unfortunately, it seems in this regard, we too are a little like the rich man. Being some of the richest people in human history, it's no surprise that we have stored up a few unneeded treasures for ourselves. But that alone was not why he was condemned. The second part is a little less clear. It says, and he was not rich toward God. How does one become rich toward God? Clearly, that's an important question to Christians living in Australia. But before, and, and I think Jesus gives a very clear answer to that just later on in this passage. Before he does give that answer, Jesus moves on to a different topic. When I first read this, it seemed like a diversion. Uh, but Jesus saw that it was directly linked to what he just said. Look at verse 22. And he said to his disciples, For this reason, I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Jesus has linked this statement 
with the preceding ones with the words for this reason. So, for what reason? (laughs) I think Jesus is about to give the people a reason why people are not rich toward God. Or, if we put it positively, what attitude do we need in order for us to be rich toward God? Well, Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus gave this exhortation, or rather, he gave a command, which was, do not worry. Uh, I remember a Baptist preacher, David Pawson, uh, saying that do not worry is one of the most repeated commands in the Gospels. And that's the reason when you come to church that you can never find anybody who worries. Mary Crowley was a successful Christian businesswoman in the 70s. I liked her approach to worry. Every, every evening, she said, I turn my worries over to God. He's going to be up all night anyway. <laughs> we are more likely to laugh about our tendency to worry than to fight it. Uh, but Jesus spends the next 10 verses trying to convince us not to worry. He says in verse 23, There is really more to life than food and clothing. See the birds? They don't store up for the future, but God still looks after them. And worrying won't make you live a single day longer. So if you can't add one day to your life, what's the point of worrying about the rest? God even puts beautiful skirts of flowers on the grass. When you put clothes on you, you know, don't even worry about what you're going to eat. Non-Christians worry about these things. God knows you need them. Just be about God's business and he'll make sure you have what you need. And not only what you need, he will give you the kingdom as well. Well, the principle here is, uh, is fairly obvious. Don't worry, trust God. And so now we finally get to what I think this whole passage has been building to. Suppose there is someone here sitting in these pews who fears God more than death, who believes that greed is deadly and trusts God to provide everything that he needs. What would a person like that do? Well, verse 33 gives us the answer. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. And so here we have our answer. How can we be rich towards God? We store up for ourselves treasure in heaven, or that is we store up treasure where God is by giving to those poorer than ourselves. And isn't that what James said? In James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Does this sound sound like it's going to make you poorer? (laughs) 
Probably not. It would just make you a little less rich. <laughs> we would have to give away an awful lot to become truly poor by any global standard. But if we did become poor, we would be in good company. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? Though Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become truly rich. Can I conclude with uh, some practical comments on how much we should give? Jesus never stipulated how much we had to give. He did say that we should be rich toward God, not just well off toward him. And that to, means, that to me means giving God quite a lot, more than my spare change. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, gave some wise advice. I do not believe, Lewis said, one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, or should I say, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Well, my, my first rule has been that I should give away at least as much as I spend on my entertainment. I do fear standing before God and trying to explain to him why I valued my entertainment more than I valued my impoverished brothers and sisters. And my second rule was that I should give away at least as much as I spend on ensuring my own future. Ensuring my own future against a possible rainy day. It feels wrong to me to spend large sums of money on a potential rainy day that might never happen when there are so many around the world today on whom it's raining so heavily right now. As I mentioned at the beginning, John Wesley had foreseen the challenges we face today. He really lived what he preached. He made vast sums of money, uh, almost all of which he gave away. And when he died, he had only the money that were le was left in his pockets. To Wesley, the most evident threat was the growing wealth of the Methodists. He believed that Christianity has within it the seeds of its own demise. D discipleship makes us more diligent and frugal. And as we become more diligent and frugal, wealth increases. Wesley considered wealth and the failure to give the, to give the most serious threats to the Methodist movement in particular and Christianity in general. So what was Wesley's solution? What way, Wesley said, can we take that our money may not sink us down to hell? There is one way and there is no other under heaven. If they will give all they can, then the more they gain, the more they will grow in grace and the more treasure they will lay up in heaven. Does God have a wonderful plan for your life? Maybe. But I know for sure that God has a wonderful plan for your eternal life. And the richer you are towards God, the more wonderful that life will be. 
Well, thank you for your attention. God bless you.